0: all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. We're in the book of numbers, taking sort of a slower than a survey, but faster than an in-depth verse by verse, just moving through it. And we're at chapter 22. Now, before we get into this, I have a little challenge for you. I was speaking at a men's group here recently, and uh, I asked everybody that was, it was, a, there was a, uh, you know, one of these places where you buy a table for eight people and all that, and the place that was sold out, and they all had their... I said, uh, take out a piece of paper and write down... That And they were all Christian businessmen, by the way. I said, write down the thing that's the most your most important stewardship. You don't have to physically do it, but mentally, what would you write down? What is your most important stewardship? You can take family... You can think of a lot of neat words. My suggestion is, having put you on the spot to write that down, is your most important stewardship is your heart. Watch over your heart. You've heard me speak of that in the past. We're going to encounter a character tonight that was a prophet, that had an amazing knowledge of the true God, that had a very strange kind of conscientiousness had incredible spiritual gifts. And the more we learn about the guy, the stranger that issue he becomes. But for the moment, accept the premise. He had a problem that negated everything else. His heart was not in the right place. You can know God. You can know a lot about him. You can be aware of his presence. You can be endowed of amazing gifts and still blow it. I suggest to you, the guy we're going to see to, to, uh, read about tonight is probably more gifted spiritually, in a sense, than anyone in this room. And yeah, I would imagine that I would, it would be my prayer that most of you in this room outclass him on the report card that God writes. Because he cares about the heart, not about the gifts, not about a lot of other things. Interesting character we're going to run into. Also, um, before we get into this, so you'll understand the context of the story, you need to understand, you got to imagine that you're a Moabite. You've got a, a nation, uh, and most of the nations in that time were agrarian, that is, they depended upon agriculture, specifically herds. And there are a couple of million people going to pass by with their herds. So, you know, it's not a casual thing to share. <laughs> they can wipe you out. By having their herds eat up the arable pasturing and so forth. So a, there's some non trivial issues here. You need to understand that in the past, the Amorites conquered the Moabites. And just recently, we read in chapter 21 how the, these Israelites conquered the Amorites. Now, if the Amorites conquered the Moabites and Israel conquered the Amorites, where does that put you as a Moabite? In deep dread. And deep dread. Now you've also heard the stories as a Moabite. That 40 years earlier, this gang of vagabonds subdued Egypt in a sense. They freed them. The you know, god that they worship freed them as slaves. Wiped out the Egyptian army. And they've heard the stories over the last 40 years. Now this gang is coming, and the king of Moabite, the Balak, is nervous, terrified, and, and, and that's his predicament. And um, he is going to solicit the help of a supernatural agent. By reputation, there's this character by the name of Balaam, who is incredibly powerful in a spiritual sense, a supernatural sense, is his, his fame is widespread. And this Balak is going to undertake a bizarre strategy. He's going to pursue the assistance of Balaam against this imagined enemy. Now it's a little strange, Balak didn't do the obvious just to go and negotiate, do something. No, he's going at it a different way. Which brings us now. But you have to understand, as we jump into chapter 22, it falls in the heel, heels of the previous chapter where we had Sihon and Og subdued. There was some previous battles; they got the the enemies of Israel were wiped out. So it's understandable that Moab is in terror. Specifically, the king of the Moabites, Balak. So let's. Uh, Jumping to chapter twenty-two, verse one, and the children of Israel set forward and encamped in the plains of Moab on this side of the Jordan by Jericho. Don't be confused about this side. Which side would that be? East side. They're not across Jericho. That's Joshua. That comes later. Okay. It's interesting that the writer <laughs> is writing from his point of view, which is which side? East side, of the east side. Okay, of of Jordan. Okay. Now, verse two. And Balak the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was very much afraid of the people, because they were many. And Moab was distressed because of the children of Israel. And Moab said unto the elders of Midian, Now shall this company lick up all that are round about us, as the ox licketh up the grass of the field. And Balak the son of Zippor was the king of the Moabites at that time. Interesting figure of speech, by the way, a very natural one if you are in that, agric- in that in that economy. You and I probably are not aware, unless you've been on a ranch or something, of how coarse and rough and the uh, a, a tongue of a, a cow is. It's like a scythe, okay But for the writer, it was not only very you're very aware of it, but it's a figure of speech you know it's interesting. It's a subtle uh, example of uh, authenticity in the authorship, because they were many. Uh, because uh, this company shall lick up all that are round about us, as the ox licketh up the grass of the field. In other words, they're using a figure of speech that would be very understandable to someone that has, has uh, makes their livelihood with a herd. But more, getting back here a little bit, Balak the son of Zippor. The word Balak means to make waste, and. Uh, interesting, and, or, or, he, uh, or someone who the deity has destroyed. It's a, it carries that flavor in, in, its, in the roots that they've studied. The word, and incidentally, his name shows up in the Egyptian Aramaean papyrus that you can find in the British Museum, just as a footnote. I don't know what you do with that piece of information, unless you really got time on your hands in the British Museum to take it down. But Okay. He is the son of Zippor. Zippor was his father. Zippor is the masculine form of Zipporah, the name of Moses' wife. And, and scholars have been fascinated by that. I wouldn't jump to any conclusions. It's just a passing observation. However, there is an interesting thing in my mind. The word Zippor means small bird. Zipporah is the feminine. Uh, Zippor means small bird. And I'm fascinated by that because of Matthew 13. Those of you that Know my peculiar mystical views of the scripture. I believe every word, every place name, every detail is engineered by God Himself. And there is a concept in the scripture called the principle of expositional constancy. And it's interesting that in the, remember the seven kingdom parables? In parables, idiomatically speaking, birds are bad. The birds in those parables are the ministers of Satan, they're evil, if you recall. If you don't know what I'm talking about, get the tapes on Matthew 13, because I won't, I won't uh, succumb to taking that side trip right now. But I'll just mention it's interesting that, Zippor means a small bird, and those of you that are, share those peculiar viewpoints of mine can track that down on your own. Okay, um, now we got down to verse four, didn't we? That's good. Verse five: He sent, therefore, that is Balak, the king of Mid, uh, of the Moabites. He sent messengers, therefore, unto Balaam, the son of Beor, to Pethor, which is by the river of the land of the children of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, there is a people come out from Egypt. Behold, they cover the face of the earth, and they abide over against me. Come now, therefore, I pray thee, curse for me this people." For they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall prevail that we may smite them and that I may drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom thou blessed is blessed and he whom thou cursest is cursed. That's the message. Let's uh, Balaam. This is this interesting guy, Balaam. The more you study Balaam, if you have any references, the more confusing it becomes. I have an extensive library and it's amazing how confused everybody is about Balaam. They do all kinds of research most of it is, is quite speculative. The word Balaam means the destroyer, and implicitly by the structure of it, the destroyer of people. Uh, from Bala to destroy, and Am from the people, and uh, there's, there's references in Scripture. But more, more to the point to our narrative, um, oh, by the way, his father, Beor, the word Beor also comes from roots which means to burn or consume. So if names mean anything, Balaam and his father are bad news to begin with, okay? But more to the point, perhaps, is this area called Pethor, which is by the river of the land of the children of his people. There are places in the Scripture, namely in Isaiah, where the river, the great river, means the Nile, but the context there is Egypt. That's not the general appellation. Pethor, which is by the river of the land of the children of his people. The river here is the Euphrates, strangely enough, and Pethor is identified with Aram Naharim in Deuteronomy 23.4 and, uh, and, and some other references. It's an area from the Arontas Valley eastward beyond the Euphrates. To put it a long story short, the town that they believe is Pethor was 600 kilometers, or for you and I, 360 miles from Moab. Why am I making that point? Because that may, it's rather by anyone's travel, that's a long way. By foot or caravan and so forth, it's still a long way. Whether you're riding or walking, it's uh, three hundred and sixty miles is a non-trivial trip. Many scholars are troubled by that, and they've tried to identify places that would fit the situation that are closer at hand. There is a construct if you assume that the river here is the Nile. There is a town that could be maybe not quite. It's still a long way away. So you can slice it either way. Uh, the best authorities seem to place it as uh, the uh, in the Ararat Valley, which is a long way away. So when Balak sends for Balaam, he's a, he's not asking Balaam to you know walk a couple miles and come do an errand for me. This is a ma- he's asking Balaam to undertake a major undertaking. What's also interesting is is that Balaam's reputation has caused Balak to seek him out. Because Balaam apparently is widely understood to be a prophet, a seer, a sorcerer, or what have you. Give it whatever particular label you like. Uh, uh, Balak is um, convinced. By the way, that's interesting here. Balak is not turning to the gods of Moab. What's implied is that Balak understands that his own system that he's entangled in is dead machinery, isn't? Doesn't have real vitality because he's going outside his system, seeking supernatural aid from this guy Balaam. It's a very, very. The more you think about it, the stranger the whole situation is. One of the questions, or the other thing you're going to discover if you get into the text is that this guy Balaam is not some kind of phony. He's got his shortcomings. We'll dwell on that. But before we get into that, recognize... Oh, b- by the way, the name Elohim is used, which is the Hebrew for the Creator God. But there's a very special word, the tetragamaton, the what we call Jehovah. Some people call Yahweh. We won't get into that issue. But there is a name of God that speaks y- speaks specifically of the covenant relationship. That's the relationship that um, specifically is generally used in the Scripture of the covenant relationship between God and Israel, Jehovah, as we say, as opposed to God Almighty, El Shaddai, or Elohim, or a lot of names for God. But but the, the Jehovah name, or Yahweh name, is a name speaking specifically of the God of grace, specifically of the God of the covenant relationship. That's the name that Balaam knows and uses. That raises all kinds of scholarly questions. Like, where did Balaam derive his knowledge of the Most High God? No one knows. It's a mystery. But uh, he does have knowledge of the Most High God, and he also has an amazing amount of faith. We're going to dwell on his stumblings and his fumblings and his mistakes, but before we do that, recognize that if you, if you watch the story carefully, you'll discover this guy Balaam is a strange character because he knows the Most High God, and he is, in a sense of speaking, extremely conscientious. That's masked by the fact that he's also covetous, and we'll get into that, but recognize that Balaam is not some kind of uh, phony. He's got um, some amazing knowledge. Most scholars feel that wherever he got it, it derives from Abraham and uh, subsequent, because you remember where Abraham came from, came from that part of the country originally. Uh, Bethuel and Laban, both uh, relatives of Abraham, obviously they also had idol worshiping in their households, but they came from a knowledge of the Most High. We find that in Genesis 24, verse 50, and Genesis thirty-one, forty-nine. for those of you that want to uh, chase that down. Now, one other thing to help tie this together a little bit, if you study archaeology or if you have an encyclopedia, you may have run into a thing called the Moabite Stone. It's a stone very analogous to the Rosetta Stone, except in the sense of being a very important finding to understand language. The Moabite Stone seems to demonstrate that all the descendants of Abraham and Lot had essentially the same language and was essentially derivative of Hebrew. So one thing you need to understand, there was a common precedent language from which all these languages derived. The Moabite stone helps demonstrate that. Now, so this guy, uh, Balaam, is going to be a real mystery for us. We're interested in him, not just because he shows up in the next few chapters of the book of Numbers, but he's mentioned three times in the New Testament. Second Peter 2, Jude 11, and Revelation 2. And we have made references in the New Testament are always reproachful. We think of Balaam as a bad guy. He's blown. It. The way of Balaam, the error of Balaam, and the doctrine of Balaam are three uh, allusions in the New Testament. Balaam is held up as a bad example. But I think it's important for us as we go into this To recognize the positives because they just add greater mystery, or I should say, greater insight into what the negatives really mean. Because you and I could well covet the gifts that he had. He was a prophet, and before the story is over, he's going to present some interesting prophets, prophecies, some amazing prophecies. There's one passage attributed to Balaam. I mean, in Balaam, which most scholars believe, is a prophecy of the Christmas star, star of Bethlehem. So Balaam is a strange character. Don't miss the story by assuming that he's some kind of crackpot that was a false prophet or something. Uh, it's possible we're seeing this wrong, and he might have been, but I don't think so. As I read the text, the, the the real mystery occurs because he, in fact, has gifts and is used by God and in his own peculiar way is conscientious, albeit he makes some real mistakes. He's very... He's up for hire, and he's doing, he's, 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 uh, he, he's uh, got some real problems. Okay. Um, so the positives are he has a true knowledge of the Most High God. He has an unquestioning faith, in a sense. He has an undoubted prophetic gift. His gift is so conspicuous that the king of the Moabites solicits him because of his awareness of his gifts. What's his problem? His heart. Balaam's heart is not in the right place. He's got these gifts, got this reputation, but he's he's given to covetousness. He's up for hire. He'll do almost anything for dollars within the constraints of his conscientious. He'll, he'll find a way to rationalize it. And you'll see that, that's his struggle, that he gets screwed up in here. And he essentially prostitutes his prophetic powers. That's the mistake. That's the error of Balaam. We're going to get into the doctrine of Balaam is where he takes his spiritual insight, which is correct, in a sense, as far as it goes, and he gives it to Israel's enemies in the hopes of Israel's undoing. We'll find out about that, too, and that's what Revelation alludes to and so forth, the the doctrine of Balaam. We'll get to that. Okay. To get Balak's position clear, Balak is not only afraid of Israel, you'll discover he's also afraid of the God of Israel. very common belief structure, particularly in those in that times, is that that fear, that the identity of the nation and the God it worships were co-mingled. The people were viewed as the son of their God. And so if they were powerful, they, you feared their God as well as the nation. And Balak's in that mode. He's, he's, uh, he's uh, far from God himself, but in extremis, he seeks powers higher than his own. And so his seeking out Balaam is a strange kind of acknowledgement that he attributes reality to the God of Israel doesn't know how to deal with it, and of course he's also, in effect, acknowledging the dead machinery of his own formalism, the system that he's that that was characteristic of the Moabites. Now, so I don't give build up Balaam too strong. You, you have to understand that Balaam, as we go through it, you'll realize that he knew what he was doing was wrong; his purpose was wrong. He's really after what pays the best. He's in that position of trying to rationalize within his faith in God that which he really wanted to do. He didn't ask the question, what does God prefer me to do? He's looking for a way to let me go there, God, to earn this fee. So he's, in a sense, conscientious in a strange way, but he's trying to reflect his own desires. In contrast, to really be obedient from the heart to understand what would please God rather than what pleases Balaam. And uh, we'll see how that goes. Okay. Okay. uh, Just to pick a review again, verse 5. Balak then sends messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, to Pethor, which is by the river of the land of the children of his people, to call him, saying, Behold, there is a people come out of Egypt. That was 40 years ago, but Balak realizes that's a threat. Behold, they cover the face of the earth, (laughs) and they abide over against me. Come now, therefore, I pray thee, curse for me, this people. For they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall prevail that, they, that we may smite them and that I may drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom thou blessed, blessed is blessed and whom thou cursest is cursed. See, the, 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 uh, Balaam's run some effective advertising however he's done it. Because Balak is, is convinced that he's effective. Verse 7, The elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the rewards of divination in their hand. In other words, the fee, whatever it was, Obviously, very substantial. It would have to be to get this guy to travel 360 miles to run this errand. Secondly, to also cause Balaam to overcome his natural instincts to be, because he has he has a knowledge and so forth. It has to be a heavy fee. And it came unto Balaam and spoke unto him the words of Balak, and he said unto them, Lodge here this night, and I will bring you word again as the Lord shall speak unto me. And the princes of Moab abode with Balaam. Notice Balaam. You can argue, well, he's just going through the formality. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. Verse 9, God came unto Balaam. Oh, really? This guy's not a phony. He is in communication with God. God came unto Balaam and said, what men are these with thee? And Balaam said unto God, Balak the son of Zippor, the king of Moab, hath sent me unto me, saying, Behold, there is a people come out of Egypt who covereth the face of the earth. Come now, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to overcome them and drive them out. Okay. God said unto Balaam, Thou shalt not go with them. You want some leading? You're praying about it? Here's your direction. Don't go. Thou shalt not curse the people, for they are Blessed. So there you are, Balaam, you got your instruction. What does he do with it? Salute and say, great, okay, I won't go. That's not quite what he does, as you'll see. Balaam rose up to the, uh, in the morning, said unto the princes of Balak, get you into your land, for the Lord refuseth to give me leave to go with you. Interesting. So far, Balaam's okay, huh? He's obviously got knowledge. He's got communication with God. God's given him clear direction, and He responds. On the face of things. In his heart, that's not what he wants to do, but he's being conscientious, isn't he? You see, be careful. Put yourselves in Balaam's shoes tonight. You see, and you'll find they pinch a bit. And the princes of Moab rose up, and they went unto Balak, traveled 360 miles back home, and said, Balaam refuseth to come with us. And Balak sent yet again princes more and more honorable than they. In other words, you escalate the rank. You send more, more dignified guys with more camels and whatever and go. And they came to Balaam and said unto him, Thus saith Balak, the son of Zippor, Let nothing, I pray thee, hinder thee from coming unto me, for I will promote thee unto very great honor, and I will do whatever thou sayest unto me. Come, therefore, I pray thee, curse for me these people. Now, from Balak's point of view, that's very straightforward, you know, raise the ante a little bit, you know. Balaam answered and said unto the servants of Balak, If Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. So far, looking pretty good, huh? If you're in Balak's shoes, you're going to be feeling pretty good now, you know. you get The local Bible study and say, Boy, let me tell you how faithful I was. You know, i turn these guys down a second time, right? And it's in the language here, by the way, he's using, you don't see it in the English, he's using very, very great insight in the words he's using. We're talking Jehovah, not God in some abstract, broad, pantheistic sense. We're talking the covenant name of God. So wherever Balak—I mean Balaam got it, so far, he's evidencing a lot of uh, knowledge. Verse 19. Now therefore I pray you, tarry ye also here this night that I may know what the Lord will say unto me more. Whoops. Gee, Balaam, I thought you got the message. But he's going to push it, right? And this is where it bothers me a little bit because I think in my life I know I'm guilty of this. You know, maybe if I rephrase the question, you know. And God came unto Balaam at night, and said unto him, If the men come to call thee, rise up and go with them. But yet the word which I shall say unto thee, that shalt thou do. God has given Balaam permissive will. Okay, Balaam, you insist, you can go, but you're going to tell exactly what I tell you to say. Balaam's got to be pleased. Okay, I got what I wanted. Got what who wanted? See what Balaam wanted. That's the difference. We're now entering into this strange doctrinal area between what's best and what he'll allow. The guy wanted to live longer in the Old Testament. God says, okay, you'll live a little longer. Move the sundial back to prove that he was going to do it, to confirm that that was any and he lived a little longer. But was it pleasant? No, it wasn't right at all. How often, if we really insist, God may give give us the second best to our detriment. Balaam would have been better off if he'd taken God's first suggestion. Don't go. Okay, Balaam, you want to go, fine. You can go, but say exactly, and he does. You'll discover that Balaam, to Balak's (laughs) frustration, uh, uh, in a sense, Balaam does uh, what God tells him to do. Verse 21, Balaam rose up in the morning and saddled his donkey, his ass, and went with the princes of Moab. Verse 22, and God's anger was kindled because he went. That's hard for us to to understand at first. Hey, wait a minute, God, you said he could go. Yes, he insisted. God's anger was kindled because he went, and the angel of the Lord stood in the way for an adversary against him. This is now, not only do we have one of the strangest characters in the Bible, in the the narrative we're dealing with, we also have, encounter now, one of the strangest incidences in the Scripture. This is an instance, you know, some very good scholars feel this is just a legend or it's metaphoric language nonsense. It really happened. It's hard to understand, but it really happened. Convinced of it for lots of reasons. God's anger was kindled because he went, and the angel of the Lord stood in the way for an adversary against him. Now he was riding upon his ass, and his two servants were with him. And the ass saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way, and his sword drawn in his hand. Oh, that should ring familiar not because we're reading it chronologically, but if we've looked ahead and read the book of Joshua, which in this class we've studied, you recall Joshua also one evening was doing sentry duty, I guess, and saw a man with his sword drawn, and Joshua, being a good general, challenged him like a sentry and said, Are you with us or our enemies? And this personage with the sword drawn said, I am the captain of the Lord's host. Take off your shoes. You are on hallowed ground. And he commands Joshua, and Joshua worships this character. Is he an angel? Well, no, because angels will not allow themselves to be worshipped. We know thus in Joshua 5 that the guy that really fought the battle of Jericho, despite the song, was none other than Jesus Christ, in one of his pre-incarnate appearances. It's probable, not certain, that this is exactly what we have here. Here he is not being worshipped, so I can't make that, you know, linkage as tight. But in any case, we have an interesting parallel here. We have an angel of the Lord, which may be a proper title, or it may be just a guy on special duty, with a sword drawn. This guy doesn't mess around. Forty years ago, he wiped out the firstborn of all the Egyptians One night. It happened to be Friday night from the Egyptian reckoning, and since then, Friday the 13th is bad news in our culture, because that's the Gentile side of the Passover. Why? Because an angel of the Lord went through the death angel and went through Egypt. Now, here again, Balaam's in trouble, and this donkey is going to save his life. The ass turned aside out of the way and went into the field. Balaam, of course, not seeing the angel, figured it's just... You know, a problem animal. He went in the field, and Balaam smote the ass to turn her into the way. In other words, he beat the donkey. Donkey had better insight than Balaam did. But the angel of the Lord stood in the path of the vineyards, a wall being on this side and a wall on that side. And when the ass saw the angel of the Lord, she thrust herself. Unto the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall, this did not please Balaam. I't <laughs> if you've ever done any writing, but when you get a stubborn animal, you know, they always find that low branch you know and 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 uh, or you know they they uh, uh, you know uh, a uh, cantankerous animal can be uh, can 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 uh, probe the weaknesses in our personality <laughs> in any case. Balaam, what did he do? He smote her again. The angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn, either to the right or to the left. And when the ass saw the angel of the Lord, she fell down under Balaam, and Balaam's anger was kindled. So he smote the ass with a staff. In other words, three times Balaam's response, which at a human level is understandable, took it out on the animal. The Lord opened the mouth of the ass, and she said unto Balaam, What have I done unto thee that thou hast smitten me these three times? I'd love to... (laughs) Bill Cosby could have fun with this one, couldn't he? I don't know what... uh, I don't know what um, Balaam went through his mind. I have no idea. But he speaks to the donkey and says, Because thou hast mocked me, I would, there were a sword in my hand, for now I would kill thee. Balaam is angry. He's so angry, he apparently just uh, passes over the fact that his donkey spoke in ways he could understand. I'm not going to suggest to you that it was common in those days that donkeys and people had conversations. One of the problems with the narrative that puzzles a lot of scholars is that that in the abbreviated narrative here, there's no surprise or reaction, and so forth. But in any case, uh, the ass said unto Balaam, Am I not thine ass, upon which thou hast ridden ever since I was thine unto this day? Was I ever accustomed to do so unto thee? And Balaam said, Nay. (laughs) I didn't make that up. It's right here. (laughs) And the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way, and his sword drawn in his hand, and he bowed down his head and fell flat on his face. And the angel of the Lord said unto him, Wherefore hast thou smitten thine ass these three times? Behold, I went out to withstand thee, because thy way is perverse before me. And the ass saw me and turned from me these three times. Unless she had turned from me, surely now also I had slain thee and saved her alive. And Balaam said unto the angel, Lord, I have sinned, for I knew not that thou stoodest in the way against me. Now, therefore, if it displeased thee, I will return again. Strange, isn't it? I have to laugh. I, one, of the, one of the many sources I use is the pulpit commentary. And I couldn't resist because it has, you know, in background to these things you typically. But I love the one subtitle. It says, "Every Balaam has his ass," and uh, that was one of the points they were making out of it. I thought, uh, with a line like that and the straight commentary, there's nothing I can do to improve on. It. I'll just leave, I'll, I'll leave my mischief ways, mischievous ways behind, and not, not uh, go any further on that one. But a very strange story. The donkey being used by God, obviously supernaturally. Obviously God somehow using uh, the animal to. Uh, uh communicate to Balaam. Strange, strange episode. Um, but also interesting because trying to put yourself where Balaam's thing because Balaam, Balaam uh, repents, acknowledges sin, and uh, offers to return under threat of death. I think that's very <laughs> gracious of uh, Balaam. Um, verse 35, And the angel of the Lord said unto Balaam, Go with the men, But only the word that I shall speak unto thee, that thou shalt speak. So Balaam went with the princes of Balak. Strange story. And when Balak heard that Balaam was come, he went out to meet him uh, to a city of Moab, which is in the border of Arnon, which is in the utmost boundary. And Balak said unto Balaam, Did I not earnestly send unto thee to call thee? Wherefore camest thou not unto me? Am I not able indeed to promote thee to honor? And Balaam said to Balak, Lo, I am come unto thee. Have I now any power at all to say anything? The word that God putteth in my mouth, that shall I speak. And Balaam went with Balak, and they came unto Kiriath Huzoth. And Balak offered oxen and sheep, and went to Balaam and to the princes that were with them. And it came to pass on the next day that Balak took Balaam and brought him up into the high places of Baal, that from there he might see the utmost part of the people. So, in other words, you're going to to discover this is going to happen several times. Balak takes him to high ground, and from this high ground they apparently can overlook and see the nation Israel, right? Okay. Balaam said unto Balak, Build me here seven altars, and prepare me here seven oxen and seven rams. And Balak did as Balaam had spoken, and Balak and Balaam offered on every altar a bullock and a ram. Who are they offering it to? By the way, we don't know, but it's not a stretch to presume they're offering it to the Lord, the Most High God, because Balaam is organizing this, not Balak. So they're not offering it to the to, you know, Shimosh the Moabite God. Because Balak himself is unimpressed (laughs) with his own system. That's why he's resorted to soliciting Balaam's help. So, uh, okay. But then again, that's speculation on our part. Verse 3. And Balaam said to Balak, Stand by thy burnt offering, and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me, and whatsoever he showeth me, I will tell thee. And he went to a high place. And God met Balaam, and he said unto him, I have prepared... Seven altars, I have offered upon every altar a bullock and a ram. The Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return unto Balak, and thus shalt thou speak. And he returned unto him, and lo, he stood by his burnt sacrifice, he and all the princes of Moab. He took up this parable and said, Balak the king of Moab hath brought me from Aram out of the mountains of the east, saying, Come, curse for me Jacob, and come defy Israel. How shall I curse whom God hath not cursed? Or how shall I defy whom the Lord hath not defied? For from the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him. And lo, the people shall dwell alone, and shall not be reckoned among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob and the number of the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous, and let my last end be like his." doesn't sound like a curse to me, does it? Neither does it sound like a curse to the guy paying the bills. Balak said unto Balaam, What hast thou done unto me? I took thee to curse mine enemies, and behold, thou hast blessed them altogether. <laughs> I wish I could do this with an ethnic thing. It could be kind of... And he answered and said, Must I not heed to speak that which the Lord hath put in my mouth? Now, so far, you don't have a lot of problem with Balaam. I mean, yes, he's got this, you know. But there's an interesting kind of conscientiousness here. It's not enough, by the way, so don't misunderstand me. But let's give him his credit uh, where it's due. Verse 13, And Balak said unto him, Come, I pray thee, with me unto another place, from where thou mayest see them. Thou shalt see but the utmost part of them. Thou shalt not see them all, and curse them for me from there. bear in mind, Balak's paying the bills, right? Okay, verse 14. And he brought him unto the field of Zophim, to the top of Pisgah, and built seven altars, and offered a bullock and a ram on every altar. And he said unto Balak, Stand here by thy burnt offering while I meet the Lord yonder. And the Lord met Balaam. See, that in itself is interesting. God is using Balaam. He's working through Balaam. The Lord met Balaam and... Put a word in his mouth and said, Go again unto Balak and say thus. And when he came to him, behold, he stood by his burnt offering, and the princes of Moab with him. And Balak said unto him, What hath the Lord spoken? And he took up this parable and said, Rise up, Balak, and hear. Hearken unto me, thou son of Zibor. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. In other words, he doesn't lie and he doesn't change his mind. That's what I mean. See? Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Hath Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? Behold, I have received commandment to bless, and he hath blessed, and I cannot reverse it. He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. God brought them out of Egypt He hath, as it were, the strength of a wild ox. Surely there is no enchantment against Jacob, neither is there any divination against Israel. According to this time it shall be said of Jacob and of Israel, What hath God wrought? Behold, the people shall rise up as a great lion, and shall lift himself as a young lion. He shall not lie down until he eat of the prey and drink the blood of the slain. Balak said to Balaam, Neither curse them at all, nor bless them at all. <laughs> what? Well, stop, stop. Don't say uh, If you're not going to do it my way, let's not do it, right? But Balaam answered and said unto Balak, Told not I thee, saying, All that the Lord speaketh, that I must do. Interesting stuff, isn't it? Balaam is not such a bad guy on balance, is he? Yes, he screwed up, and yes, we're going to run into some problems. But um, here's the guy paying the bills who wants him to say certain things. Balaam won't do it. Interesting guy. A couple of subtle things here. Um, verse 21, the shout of a king is among them. Catch that? What's interesting about that is that the word there in the Hebrew, the shout of a king, is the word that can also mean jubilation. shows up in 1 Samuel 4. It shows up in Leviticus 23 and Psalm 47, and there it means the sounding of the sacred trumpets. The shout of a king and the sound of a trumpet is there linguistically linked. There is another shout and a trumpet that Paul speaks of, right? The voice of the archangel. 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15. Okay? It's also interesting here, there's just a linguistic hint behind Balaam's discussion here that who is going to lead Israel the tribe of Judah. What's the symbol of the tribe of Judah, the royal tribe, the lion? Remember? And what is the messianic title of Jesus Christ? The lion of the tribe of Judah. So it's interesting that in the poetic language that Balaam is using, not just one layer behind underneath that is some, some interesting consistency with what we know is coming. Well, let's see. Uh, let's, uh, we're down to verse 27. And Balak said unto Balaam, Come, I pray thee, I will bring thee unto another place. Perhaps it will please God that there thou mayest curse them for me from there. Balak at least uh, doesn't give up easily. And Balak brought Balaam unto the top of Peor, which looketh toward Jeshimon. And Balaam said unto Balak, Build me here seven altars. Prepare me here seven bullocks and seven rams. And Balak did as Balaam had said and offered a bullock and a ram on every altar. In chapter 24, When Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he went not, as at other times, to seek for enchantments, but he set his face toward the wilderness. And Balaam lifted up his eyes, and he saw Israel abiding in their tents according to their tribes. And the Spirit of God came upon him. Interesting, isn't it? Balaam has got the Spirit of God upon him and he's going to prophesy. Now you and I have an advantage before we get into this prophecy because you and I have taken our imaginary helicopter ride over the camp of Israel. They are east of the camp. So when Balaam looks down on the camp, he sees that camp of Israel, those three tribes that make up the camp eastward, which is the camp of Judah right and to the north and south he sees the other two camps right of Dan and I think it's what uh, Ephraim and then to the west side, uh, the other one the largest being Judah, the two of equal size being north and south and the smallest being westward right and stretched because of their desire not to be anything other than east south north or west of the tabernacle. So from the mountain looking down, what is it that Balaam sees A cross, And it's interesting to have that in your mind as we go forward here. So the Spirit of God came upon him in verse 2. And he took up this parable and said, Balaam the son of Beor hath said, and the man whose eyes are open hath said, He hath said, Who heard the words of God, who saw the vision of the Almighty falling into a trance, but having his eyes open? How goodly are thy tents, O Jacob, and thy tabernacles, O Israel! Like the valleys are they spread forth, like gardens by the riverside. Like the trees of aloes, which the Lord hath planted, and like the cedar trees beside the waters, he shall pour the water out of his buckets and his seed shall be in many waters, and his king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brought him forth out of Egypt. He had, he had <clears throat> as it were, the strength of a wild ox, and he shall eat up the nations, his enemies, and shall break their bones, and pierce them through with his arrows. He crouched, he lay down like a lion, like a great lion, who shall stir him up. Blessed is he who Blesseth thee, and cursed is he who curseth thee. That really impressed Balak, of course. Verse 10, Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam, and he smote his hands together, and Balak said unto Balaam, I called thee to curse mine enemies. And behold, thou hast altogether blessed them these three times. Therefore now flee thou to thy place. I thought to promote thee unto great honor, but lo, the Lord hath kept thee back from honor. Balaam said to Balak, Spoke I not also to thy messengers, whom thou sendest to me, saying, If Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the commandment of the Lord to do either good or bad of of mine own mind. But what the Lord saith, that will I speak. And now, behold, I go unto my people, now therefore, and I will advise thee what this people shall do to thy people in the latter days. Balaam's not through prophesying, and it gets interesting. The rest is this is the last part of chapter twenty-four, book of Numbers. Some interesting stuff here. Verse fifteen, he took up this parable and said, "Balaam the son of Beor hath said, and the man whose eyes are open hath." Funny, he says he identifies himself as Balaam the son of Beor, but also the guy whose whose eyes are open. Finally, he doesn't make reference to the donkey which helped open them. But we go on. Verse sixteen. He hath said, who heard the words of God and knew the knowledge of the Most High, who saw the vision of the Almighty, falling into a trance but having his eyes open, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not near. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and shall smite the corners of Moab and destroy all the children of Sheth. And Edom shall be a possession. Seir also shall be a possession for his enemies. And Israel shall do valiantly. Out of Jacob shall he come who shall have dominion. See, this is obviously Messianic. And you can argue all you like whether the star out of Jacob is a real hint of the star that the Magi followed. Or it may simply be the the bright and morning star. Jesus likened to a source of light, but light in the darkness. That's why a star in that sense is so descriptive. And the scepter shall rise out of Israel. The scepter referring to the reality of his dominion. Verse 19 amplifies that. Out of Jacob shall he come who shall have dominion, and shall destroy him that remaineth of the city. And we looked on Amalek. He took up his parable and said, Amalek was the first of the nations, but his latter end shall be that he perish forever. And he looked on the Kenites and took up his parable and said, Strong is thy dwelling place and thou puttest thy nest in a rock. Nevertheless, the Kenites shall be wasted until Asher shall carry thee away captive. And he took up his parable and said, Alas, who shall live when God doeth this? And the ship shall come from the coast of Kittim and shall afflict Asher and shall afflict Eber and, uh, and he also shall perish forever. Balaam rose up and went and returned to his place and Balak also went on his way. (coughs) Strange stuff. Um, Okay. A couple of other observations. Uh, We won't take the time to study the history of Moab and Edom and Amalek and so forth, but uh, in detail. But Moab um, turns out not to be seriously attacked until the time of David, when it is vanquished, the inhabitants are slain. You'll find that in 2 Samuel chapter 8. Later on, when the kingdom's divided, the Moabites rebel after the death of Ahab up north, the northern kingdom, in 2 Kings 1. And um, so they uh, um, cease to be... Uh, from B.C. Uh, 129 on, Moab ceases to have independent existence. In terms of Edom, they are also conquered by David. The people were slaughtered, 1 Kings 11. And uh, they shook off the yoke under Joram in 2 Kings 8. There's much prophecy on Edom. The entire book of Obadiah deals with the, uh, the uh, future of the Edomites. And you might also know, even though Edom itself doesn't rise prominently, a couple of observations. The word Edom turns out to become, in, among Jewish people, a synonym for those that hate Israel. It becomes a, you know, a, a figure of speech of anyone that's against the nation. You might also realize that when the Romans conquered Judea, they installed Herod. The whole Herod dynasty, the Herod dynasties are Roman backed. Herod was not Jewish, he was Idiomaean or an Edomite. That's why he worked so hard building all of the temple, all this stuff to try to somehow uh, gain, their, gain uh, support, but he never made it because he was an Edomite and uh, the Jews were resentful of his being installed as king. He was not on the throne of David, he was on the throne of Rome, in effect. And so the Herods, the various Herods, were there tenuously really backed by the Roman muscle, and so they were idiomaeus. He was an Idumean or an Edomite. The Amalekes also were overthrown by Saul, and he took his direction from Samuel, 1 Samuel 15. And Amalek are never again significant. They're smitten by David, and, and also in the days of Hezekiah by, this, by the tribe of Simeon, and uh, that's in First Chronicles four and elsewhere. So, uh, the prophecies of, of Balaam do, in fact, uh, come you know, uh, do um, uh, come out. Now, um, okay. Um, incidentally, uh, my. The prophecies here, particularly in the last part of chapter 24, are of Jesus Christ. You can see that yourself, to the extent you have background in the scripture, but you can also uh, uh, retreat to Revelation 19.10. We might just remind ourselves of this peculiar verse in Revelation chapter 19, because it's a, as I've mentioned to you several times, that the, uh, the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed, but the Old Testament is in the New Testament revealed. And one of the ways, the little ways you do that, is to notice Revelation 19, verse 10. This is a place where John goes to worship the angel, by the way, and he's told not to do that. But the last phrase is the part I'm after. For so the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I can base on this verse and others the premise that all prophecy, either directly or indirectly, points to Jesus Christ. Even our character by the name of Balaam. Now something else that's interesting about Balaam, high spiritual gifts are no assurance of righteousness or anything else. Examples. Saul prophesies 1 Samuel 10 and 1 Samuel 19. And he got into a lot of trouble. Perhaps the strangest example is John, in John 11... John chapter 11, we have an interesting prophecy. There's several of these, but this is one I'll just pick as an example. Pick it up, John chapter 11, verse 49. And one of them, the, the, the Pharisees there, they're arguing among themselves, One of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, Ye know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, that the whole nation perish not. Now, the Holy Spirit may be dealing with a pun here, in a sense, but Caiaphas, unknowingly, is prophesying far more profoundly than he probably had any insight into And notice verse 51, and this he spoke not of himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation, and not for that nation only, but that he should also gather together in one the children of God that are scattered abroad. See, John, it's not just a, a, a sort of a theatrical pun, it's the kind of thing a playwright might put in, give the audience a double meaning, except that's exactly what, the Holy Spirit is pointing out here. Yes, Caiaphas said that, And he didn't realize it, probably, but that he did, in fact, speak prophetically. So the point is, uh, here's an example. The fact that someone can prophesy does not tell you anything about where their heart is themselves. And Balaam is a, perhaps the best example. What is Balaam's failing? In part, covetousness. He wasn't supposed to go in the first place. God only yielded after being pestered by. it. And uh, what's Balaam's fault? Covetousness, which is a form of idolatry. You and I probably w- would acknowledge that we're guilty of a lot of different sins. Generally, idolatry is not one that we'd list. Because we figured, gee, we don't go home and have something sitting on the mantle we burn incense to. Well, at least not most of us. Um, <laughs> Any form of covetousness is idolatry. You can make make idols out of anything that you put between you and and your time with the Lord. And uh, Balaam had a gift, had a mission, and he prostituted it for gain. That's his error. That's not his doctrine. We're going to come to to, uh, even more. But before we get into more of this... um, it's interesting that Balaam did recognize that it's impossible to reverse the benediction of God. With whatever other insights Balaam lacked, he did have that insight. He could not bless what, he could not curse what God has blessed, and vice versa. Something we're going to discover, or oh, something else in here that I wanted to pick up. I didn't want to break the stride. You notice that um, back here. Oh, not I Missed where. I- Back here in verse, in chapter twenty-three, verse twenty-one, God is speaking. Or Balaam is speaking for God. God is not a man that He should repent, and so forth. Down in verse twenty-one, He says, "He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither hath He seen perverseness in Israel." Wait a minute, gang. We just spent a good part of the book of Numbers getting some insight into human nature, and as we stand back, we're flabbergasted at the grumbling, the murmuring whatever else they were, they were stubborn, right? But that's in the family. God is saying He does not behold iniquity in His people. Because His people are free from iniquity? No. He chooses not to behold iniquity in His people, and He can do that without violating His righteousness because of the cross of Calvary, which at this point is still future. But as far as God's concerned... You know, he's outside of time altogether. He can look to the cross and the achievement there prospectively. That's how if, 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 uh, we're talking <clears throat> we talk about Adam or Abraham or David or anyone. They're all saved by the same cross that you and I are saved by. That's the basis by which God can overlook, if you will, or put aside, not behold sin in you and I because he can impute to us the righteousness of Christ. But it's interesting here, the principle here is, is that God does not behold iniquity in his people. Right? Do you realize what safety there is in that? In the idiom of the story, visualize yourself being in the nation of Israel. You are secure, aren't you, from Balak and the Moabites. Why? Because God does not impute sin to you, and and he has he, he, he uh, um, doesn't change his mind. Okay. Now, um, okay. Let's just keep let's keep moving here. Let's. I want to take chapter twenty five to finish up Balaam. Now, Balaam is yet to do something else, and the reason this is important is because it's the allusion in Revelation chapter two. Oh, you're very kind. Thank you. I must sound terrible, huh? Thank you. Um, chapter 25, verse 1. In Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit harlotry with the daughters of Moab. Now, what's not obvious here, but so that you follow the story, I'll tell you the end from the beginning. What we know from this passage and other passages in the Scripture, and that's the reference Revelation takes advantage of, is that the Moabites found a way to compromise Israel. And they got the idea from Balaam. Not clear from the narrative is, is Balaam isn't finished trying to earn his bucks. He was hired to curse the nation. He can't do that. God, he is, a, after all, a true prophet. He just to speak only what God told him. And he did that, apparently, with some diligence. But he has knowledge. And when he, he goes to Balak and he says, hey, guy, the reason you can't beat Israel is because their God is with them. But the way you beat them then is to put a division between them and God by causing them to sin. And the way you get them to sin is camp your attractive girls along the outskirts, get them to entice the uh, Israeli men, and commit fornication with them, and uh, start to mingle with their idol worship. And that will anger the God of Israel against Israel, and you'll be able to defeat them. Do you see what insight Balaam has? I mean, from your knowledge of the Old Testament, hey, he's right on, right? Sort of. Before we get into this, let me sort of do it backwards. Hold your finger because we'll finish the chapter, but I want you to pop over to Revelation chapter 2. In the seven letters to seven churches... There are uh, all kinds of encrypted codes to, that Jesus writes in these seven letters, and obviously we won't get into all of that tonight, but um, in chapter 2, he's writing a, a letter to Ephesus and to Smyrna and then to Pergamos. The third letter is to Pergamos, which means marriage to the world. And to the angel in the church of Pergamos write, These things saith he who hath a sharp sword with two edges, I know thy works, and so on. And these are all references to the first sec- the first chapter. When he gets down to verse 14, Jesus says to this church, But I have a few things against thee because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. You say, Wait a minute, the doctrine of Balaam? I remember the story of Balaam. I don't remember any doctrine particularly. Ah, it goes on. Who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. You see, that's the, that, that's one of the several things Balaam did wrong. That's called the doctrine of Balaam. The way of Balaam and the error of Balaam are mentioned by both Jude and Peter. They're referencing the other things. His, his, his covetousness and the prostitution of his gifts. That's not what's going on here. Yes, he sold himself out. How? By giving Balak the insight. Okay. Now, Jesus is making this Old Testament reference here to make another point. Just as in the next letter, he speaks of Jezebel to make a point. And you have to understand the story of Jezebel to understand the letter. Just here, to understand what's, to interpret this letter properly, you have to understand Numbers uh, 25. So let's get back to Numbers 25 and see through. Israel abode in Shittim, and the people began to commit harlotry with the daughters of Moab, and they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat and bow down to their gods. And Israel joined herself unto Baal Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. See, Balaam knew what he was doing may have been venal, motivated by money, but his technical skill was correct. He got Balak to pull off that one thing that would cause God to get mad at Israel. Verse 4, and the Lord said unto Moses, take all the heads of the people and hang them up before the Lord against the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may be turned away from Israel. And Moses said unto the judges of Israel, slay ye every one his men that were joined unto Baal Peor. And behold, one of the children of Israel came and brought unto his brethren a Midianitish woman in the sight of Moses and the sight of all the congregation and of the children of of Israel who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose up from among the congregation, took a javelin in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust both of them through, the man of Israel and the woman, through her abdomen. This is for the special effects department. You can just sort So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. And those that died in the plague were twenty and four thousand. Twenty four thousand people were tangled up with this idol worship and the prostitutes of, of Moab, and indeed God God was angry and and, and responded appropriately. Verse 10 And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Phinehas the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, hath turned my wrath away from the children of Israel, while he was zealous for my sake among them, that I consumed not the children of Israel in my jealousy. Wherefore say, Behold, I give unto him my covenant of peace, and he shall have it, and his seed after him, even the covenant of an everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God, and made an atonement for the children of Israel. Now the name of the Israelite who was slain, even who was slain with the Midianite woman, was Zimri, the son of uh, Salu, the prince of the chief house among the Simeonites. And the name of the Midian, Midianitish woman who was slain was caused by the daughter of Zur. He was head over the people and a, chief, uh, and a chief house in Midian. And the Lord spoke unto Moses saying, Vex the Midianites and smite them, for they vex you with their wiles, wherewith they, they have beguiled you in the matter of Peor and in the matter of Cosby, the daughter of the prince of Midian, their sister, who was slain in the day of the plague for Peor's sake. And it goes on. So in the, uh, chapter 25. Strange episode. Balaam. Strange guy. Mentioned several times in the Old Testament, but principally three times in the New Testament. Second Peter 2, um, Jude 11. And uh, oh, we do have time. Let's go take a quick look at that then. Let's turn to Second Peter chapter 2. And you recall there's lots of... We just finished studying the epistles of Peter. And a lot of parallels between it and the, and the epistle of Jude. We'll just take a quick look at it. Chapter two, uh, 2, Peter, chapter 2, verse 15. Speaking of false teachers, false teachers. In this case, they're like Balaam. How are they like Balaam? Who have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but was rebuked for his iniquity, the dumb ass speaking with a man's voice, forbade the madness of the prophet that's one of the reasons i don't believe it's an allegory or just a legend or a figure of speech because peter himself confirms it this donkey spoke i don't know why it gives people so many problems if god created the donkey he certainly can create a, a, a voice for the occasion so but the way of balaam you're going to distinguish three things, the way of Balaam, the error of Balaam, and the doctrine of Balaam. The way of Balaam is that he was covetous, he, he he prostituted his gifts for hire. That, uh, that, that uh, obviously is offensive to our Lord. Okay, the next uh, reference that we can take a quick look at is in the epistle of Jude. And um, in Jude, uh, which is one chapter, verse 11, Jude says, Woe, again, he's speaking of false teachers. Woe unto them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. Now we've we've gone through all of those things, um, so that um, uh, now in this in this particular case, some theologians make a distinction. They say the error of Balaam was to assume that God would caused them to be successful because he got he got Israel to sin. See, God solved that problem internally but still caused them to be victorious. So it was an error to assume that God would curse his people. See, he wouldn't do that. And, um, okay, and um, then, of course, Revelation 2.14 speaks to the doctrine of Balaam, and that's where, has as yet another issue, and that's this issue of uh, casting a stumbling block uh, before the... Uh, the uh, the uh, ch- children of Israel and that has its analogy in the church in terms of being married to the world and uh, uh, putting idol worship in the way of uh, of uh, of God's own way truth of the way okay um, okay let's stand for a closing word of prayer. We won't get into chapter 26. That starts a whole other thing and we'll, we'll get into that next time. It's easy for us to be critical of Balaam, treat him as some kind of false teacher because indeed in uh, three different occasions in the New Testament false teaching is likened to Balaam and indeed he was in error, serious error. At the same time, I think we also may miss the real import of the story if we don't recognize that Balaam had a supernatural gift. He was a prophet. He had gifts that you and I, in a sense, would covet. And what we need to understand, is not the gifts you have. It's where your heart is that counts. Balaam's problem was his heart. He was covetous. He didn't, apparently, we have no reason to believe he worshipped idols in the classical idolatry sense, but he coveted the money and he was for hire and uh uh, that's not the proper use of a gift and also the main issue is that his heart was not where god would have it you and i are guilty of the same thing praying for gee god give me that which i want rather than praying god what is it that you'd have me do our prayer life indeed should be should include Obviously, worship and praise, but also should include sharing with God our burdens and our fears, and, and and indeed putting that before the throne of grace, because God desires a greater involvement in your life. However, the real thrust of our prayers should be to seek what He would have us do, what He would have us be, where He would have us go. The real intent of prayer and the combination of praying. On the one hand, and hearing his voice in the word is the other, the whole, the closing the loop. You know, as the sender and receiver. When you, do, when you pray, you pray, and uh, the Spirit should lead you. Your answers, typically hearing him, will be uh, communicating back in your in your in in his word. But the point is, your your pursuit, your commitment, your ambition should be to seek out his will. In, and uh, that's where Balaam blew it. All the rest of it derives from that. His heart was in the wrong place. Let's heart. hearts. Father, we praise you for who you are. And Father, we're just overwhelmed and grateful that you care so much about us as to concern yourself with where we're going and what we do. And Father, we would ask you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, to make us more sensitive, to your will in our lives, your best will in our lives. Help us, Father, to to understand and to pursue and to, to properly seek out your will in our lives. We would ask you, Father, to bless your reading of the Word in our lives as we feed upon it. We would ask you, Father, to increase in us a dynamic prayer life that we might indeed Be increasingly sensitive to what you'd have us do, and in so responding. Be more pleasing in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer.